What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Ben, here to introduce this RIP, RIP 334 of TFTC. I sat down with Doomberg. Doomberg. Talk everything from energy, food, and Bitcoin. A Bitcoin skeptic. Like, not the most ardent Bitcoin skeptic. I think he's pretty close to coming around. It's a very civil conversation, which we need more of as we explain toward the end of this rip. Um, I think you guys are going to love this one. It was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model while giving you financial services for your Bitcoin as well. Uh, they help you eliminate single points of failure by getting you into their collaborative custody product, which is their Vault product, which is a two or three multi-sig wallet where you hold two keys. Unchained holds one. You always have control of your Bitcoin as long as you have those two keys. If you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum. They have a white glove concierge service that's going to take you from zero to having a two or three Vault set up. That comes with multiple video conference calls. They're going to send you hardware wallets. They're going to set your vault up and then they're going to throw a thousand cut bucks worth of sats in it. Once it's all set up, you're going, my brother's in, in the studio right now is trying to like give me a message and it's in 10, 10 font. I can't read it. I'm sorry, sir. There's consultations as well. Um, <laughs> go to unchained.com and check this out. They have the vault. They have the concierge service. They have collateralized loans, an IRA product. They're building incredible things and an incredible blog. Unchained.com. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Brains. Brains is the team behind Slushpool and the Brains OS Plus firmware. The Brains OS Plus firmware allows you to stack more sats with your ASICs because it makes them more efficient. It focuses on the higher frequency hashing boards, if you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you're leaving sats on the table. It's as simple as that. Go check out everything they have going on. If you have Brains OS Plus firmware on your ASIC and you point that hash at slush pool, you don't have to, but if you do, you're going to get 0% pool fees. They have insights.brains.com, which is a one-stop shop for all your mining data needs. They have an incredible blog as well. Go check them out at brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. The Baltic Honey Badger Conference is back this year too. The team behind the, the Hoddle Hoddle team, excuse me, um, is back to throwing the Baltic Honey Badger Conference, which is in Riga, Latvia. Uh, it is one of the most high signal conferences of the year, year in and year out, minus the last couple of years where it couldn't because of COVID. It is September 3rd and 4th this year in Riga, Latvia. BalticHoneyBadger.com is where you can go buy your tickets. I will be there. Uh, again, it's one, going to be one of the most high signal conferences on the planet this year. Um, go to BalticHoneyBadger.com to to get your tickets. Hoddle Hoddle, they have a lending platform as well. Lend.HoddleHoddle.com is their website if you want to use Bitcoin as collateral uh, and get a stablecoin loan using no KYC, no AML. You do that at Lend.HoddleHoddle.com. Last but not least... This rip is brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here to help you decentralize your healthcare. You can leverage the power of Bitcoin and healthcare crowdfunding to remove powerful insurance carriers from your healthcare and put decisions about your health back in your hands, okay? We like to reduce third-party risk here in the Bitcoin space. CrowdHealth is a great way to do that with your healthcare. They are going to help you 
lower your healthcare costs because they will negotiate with doctors on your behalf, which is what insurance companies are supposed to do, but they really don't do that because the incentives aren't aligned. Your incentives are better aligned in the crowdfunding uh, that, that crowd health provides. So uh, crowd health BTC is now accepting memberships starting June 1st. And later, if you use the code TFTC during sign up, the first 1000 members are going to receive a discounted membership of $99 a month for the first six months. Use the code TFTC or TFTC BTC. They changed it up on me. I, I don't know if that's try TFTC. If that doesn't work, TFTC BTC, the first thousand members are going to receive a discounted membership of $99 a month for the first six months. That's a deal. Okay. How does it work? You pay a monthly contribution in dollars into your health funding account. This is a custodial account held by a, uh, a well-respected Bitcoin custodian. So you put dollars in, they have a portion in dollars and then they have a Bitcoin custodian as well, where they're going to put a portion in Bitcoin and you basically DCA into a healthcare um, fund as well as uh, with dollars and Bitcoin. Um, they're working towards self-custody. Stay tuned on that. For the first four months, 100% of the dollars will be held in fiat. After that, 75% of the dollars are going to be converted to Bitcoin and 25% will be held in fiat. Um, they're asking you to hold some fiat to keep from having to sell Bitcoin in the event of a large funding request. Go check out everything they have at joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. We have a specialized landing page. If you guys do sign up, please use the code. Help support the show. I am using CrowdHealth. Uh, I, I have decided I do not like the, the insurance companies. They really don't provide value. They really don't actually pay for anything, at least in my experience at the end of the day. And I'm... Uh, very comfortable with the way crowd health set is set up and I am going to be using it going forward because I think it makes more sense. Incentives are better aligned with crowd health. You guys should think about it too. Join crowd health, join crowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Enjoy this rip with Doomberg. I always want to say Bloomberg when I'm saying it, but the play on words, they got going Doomberg, Bloomberg, Doomberg. It was an incredible rip. Warning. Thank <laughs> He's not an ardent Bitcoiner yet. We're going to get there though, freaks. Enjoy. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to TFTC. It's your boy, Marty Bent. Sitting down with a very special guest today. I'm very excited for this. I've been doing more research than I have on this particular guest. I'm sorry to all the other guests who come before you, Doomberg, but uh, I think the content you and your team are writing is extremely high signal, and I wanted to be well prepared for this interview. And uh, reading your posts is extremely enlightening. Uh, well, your posts are well written, and most importantly, they have very high signal information in them uh, across a broad spectrum of topics. So I, I want to thank you for joining us today. We lose them. Uh, we might have lost them. Now I have to ad lib here. Oh, it looks like you're in the green room, Doomberg. We've got to let you in. Do you have to let him in? Yeah. Um, I don't know. 
Thunberg, if you're if you can hear me, you might have to turn your mic on in settings. Should have troubleshooted this. This is the first time he's using um, eCam. I'm gonna shoot him a DM right now. Feds don't want to hear what he has to say. We'll see if he comes back. Oh, there he is. We good to go now? Can you hear me? Hi there. There we go. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Somehow I got put into a green, uh, which is kind of ironic considering I'm a green chicken. Uh, <laughs> I could hear you the whole time, but I, I dropped off and signed back in, such as such as life for live broadcast. But a uh, real pleasure to be here and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Oh, well, again, like I said, your your content has brought me and a lot of the people in the Bitcoin space, I don't know, you're somewhat of a cult favorite in the Bitcoin space, particularly in the realms of energy and ESG, because in the Bitcoin space, obviously, Bitcoin mining uses a lot of energy and it's been villainized. And I think the way you've been writing about energy markets, particularly as we roll into this global energy crisis that's unfolding uh, due to many factors, policy, war between Russia and Ukraine, and uh, somewhat political unwillingness to actually bring about energy security. I I'm very excited to have you on to talk about this topic particularly, but also we'll get into ESG, EVs, Bitcoin. Of course, you've written a couple pieces on Coinbase and MicroStrategy in recent weeks. And... Um, I think there's there's a lot to talk about today. You know, Marty, it's funny because um, people have interpreted many of our pieces in the sort of crypto space, which I understand is you know different than Bitcoin, as were critical or um, self self proclaimed um, no coiners. And so um, I was happily uh, surprised when you invited us to come on and, and immediately agreed to do so because um, we have probably a little bit more nuanced view on the situation than most, and um, have tried to write things sort of impartially and, and, and consistent with what we believe is going on, but always open-minded for a friendly debate and to try to learn more. And, um, and so it was you know, really great that, that you're having us on. And again, like I said, really happy to be here. Oh, yeah. I mean, we like having skeptics on. Uh, you can't just live in a bubble and have uh, an echo chamber, even though the echo chamber has its, its, uh, its values to some extent. Uh, it's important to get outside perspectives on Bitcoin particularly. Uh, check our priors and and really steal yeah. man what we're trying to do here. Well, you know, right right is where the wrong is found, and so if you can't have a friendly debate with somebody and learn something and maybe even change your mind, um, then what's the point? Exactly. So let's start with energy, though. Uh, yes. Again, like I said, you've been writing incredible posts on the landscape of the energy sector and its effect on prices and everything going on in the world right now. How dire is the situation in energy markets? Would you describe it as dire? Where are we right now in your mind? It's pretty bad. Um, so I would start by taking a step back and saying one of the key themes of our writing from the very beginning and one of the motivations for us in creating Doomberg is we come from the energy sector. Um, the team has decades of experience in heavy industry, in the commodity sector. We have a pretty detailed understanding of how physics and life interact. <clears throat> and we have observed with some alarm um, how our key policymakers and influencers 
have lost touch with physics and don't have a, a direct understanding of how their decisions are impacting real people. Uh, my, my personal background is I'm a, a PC scientist by training, and I spent a couple of decades leading research teams. And most of my focus was on energy topics, both traditional and renewable. Um, spent a lot of time, for example, working on um, solar technology. Um, and we were seeing this diversion from the fundamental laws of physics um, and really bad outcomes for innocent victims in society. And so our overarching theme of the energy aspects of the pieces that Doomberg writes is that energy is life. Um, they, literally your standard of living is defined by how much heat you get to waste. Um, this is a concept we've explored multiple times. And, this, and most recently we had a webinar with our pro subscribers where we over a period of 90 minutes walked through sort of our fundamental mental model for the world and had an extended Q and A on it. But, um, if you constrict the supply of energy and 85% of the total energy used to augment human standard of living today is derived from fossil fuels, um, you are literally destroying life and, we're seeing that now, you know, after several years of, of I would say, um, you know, catastrophic underinvestment in primary energy development, there's just less energy to go around. There's less life to spread. Um, the wealthiest amongst us are going to pay the clearing price, which is going to export significant inflation to those that can't afford it. And we're seeing something that we predicted all the way back last October in a piece that's called um, Starvation Diet that... Um, that the world is going to go through an epic famine and hundreds of millions of people are going to die because of policy blunders on the part of Western elites that have no true connection to the fundamental laws of physics and how their idiotic decisions are going to manifest in deep human suffering. And so um, that's, I you know, wish it was a cheerier answer to your <laughs> first question, but that's the reality on the ground. That's what we've been documenting. That's what we're beginning to see. And it's really kind of... Um, yeah, we wish we were wrong. Uh, I mean, it's important to start on this because I, I think people need to understand the gravity of the situation. There's very serious things happening in the world right now as it pertains to energy and food, and the, the hens are coming home to roost, no pun intended, since you're a green chicken. But, uh, I mean, just in the last week alone, where we had India um, say that they're going to stop exporting their wheat we had Sri Lanka, they're about to run out of petrol, and they're already going through a food crisis. Obviously, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine is constricting delivery of some of their wheat exports, and China has a lion's share of the world's wheat that they're holding up in, in inventory as well. Um, and so, so they claim. That's one of the big mysteries is how much of that is real. And um, some of the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party in the past few months has been pretty alarming and one wonders what's really going on over there. It's a pretty opaque society, as you know. What particularly about their actions is uh, alarming to you? The um, ongoing zero, zero COVID, um, you know, they call it dynamic zero COVID and the shutdowns in Shanghai. Uh, we know many people in China and, and spend a lot of time there during our careers and um, the lockdown is baffling. It is um, destructive. It is, crushing to global supply chains. That's it's underappreciated. The full wave, you know, the waves are yet to flow out across the world. I suspect in the next few weeks and months we're going to see a series of really odd shortages of things that we take for granted today because of what's going on in China. It's it's a real catastrophe, a calamity 
um, of human suffering that is sort of seems like an own goal. And, and I, I can't say that I fully understand it. I'm assuming you're aware of what's going on in, in cities like Shanghai um, mm-hmm. over the past few weeks. And um, it's really, really bizarre. I can't explain it. Um, tried, I've studied it a lot, tried to understand it, don't have a good answer, but it's, it's uh, in, in a time of global shortages, um, you know, that you, you reference their wheat supply. Um, let's see. Drop out again. No, I'm here. I just oh. said, let, let's, oh, see, oh, let's you know, see. Let's see. Let's see if it's real. Yeah. Um, they're behaving in very strange ways. And our radar gets peaked anytime we see such uh, bizarre behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it almost seems like, I don't know, you, you have many different views on all this. Is it a controlled demolition? Is it a deep economic attack via China and others who would like to become the superpowers? of the future trying to destabilize the West. Um, and you take into consideration the energy policy that has been pervasive here in the United States and in Europe, more particularly over the last couple of decades, where these countries psyoped into becoming less secure uh, using the specter of uh, calamitous climate change as, as the reason to drive towards these unreliable, unstable, more expensive energy resources in favor of reliable and abundant resources that um, we're just refusing to take out of the ground and deliver to market. Yeah, it could be as simple as President Xi is isolated and um, has no idea what's going on on the ground or is, you know, like how did Stalin happen? How did Chairman Mao happen? We, we could be living through one of those right now. Um, so it, it, it is certainly exacerbated by the global energy crisis. Um, but there's something very deeply disturbing going on in China today. And, and I don't think that it's sort of, as one would say on Wall Street, fully priced in. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's going to, um, the, the, the sort of circling waves uh, outflowing from the rock hitting the pond of, uh, you know, is going to wash up upon our shores here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And you hear people use the phrase gradually, then suddenly a lot in many different mm-hmm. contexts. Mm-hmm. We talk about it in Bitcoin, when potential hyper-Bitcoinization will happen gradually, then suddenly... It seems like we may be reaching a suddenly point in global markets and this energy and food security. Like, how quickly do you think this could unravel? You mentioned a few weeks we'll we'll feel some effects of the supply chain disruptions out of China. Uh, again, going back to India, closing their wheat exports. Sri Lanka going through a very dire situation. How how quickly do you think that could spread? And does it come to the West? I think. Um... I think the fall harvest in the Western hemisphere is going to be an important, um, an important period of time. I think we're seeing the early warning signs of, of crisis. So look, we, we wrote a piece that was, um, that was pretty impactful called farmers on the brink a couple of weeks ago, where we predicted the global famine once again, and outlined, you know, we had surveyed we have pretty extensive contacts in the agricultural sector and, we had surveyed our American contacts to get an understanding of what was going on um, with the inputs into farming from a cost perspective. And then playing that forward to, sure, in the U.S., we'll be able to pay that price, um, but farmers overseas aren't going to be able to. And, um, and we're seeing that play out. And, and one of the things we predicted all the way back in October in um, Starvation Diet is that the in a, in a, sort of a, a cascading series of of um, protectionist policies would be implemented that would eventually lead to economic vapor lock. And we're seeing that today with Indonesia 
banning the exports of palm oil or um, you know India banning the exports of wheat, um, the war in Ukraine and and the you know impacts on Belarus, who's a major producer of potash and the the ports along the Black Sea being closed. Um, you know, we in the West have been lulled into a I would I would characterize it as a false sense of security. What I believe will happen is we will pay any price. We will bail out farmers um, who are actually having a fantastic bumper year financially this year because um, U.S.-based farmers are financially sophisticated, able to pre-buy their fertilizer, um, hedge their crop yields, you know, all these sort of sophisticated financial tools um, that aren't accessible to the marginal farmer or the median farmer around the world um, makes this year especially lucrative for U.S. farmers. But um, for those farmers that weren't able to do that, won't be spreading fertilizer, um, we're going to see substantial challenges. And so in the U.S., we will bail out any farmers in trouble. We will um, give stimulus to the those less uh, economically fortunate, and we won't see major food shortages here in the U.S., although I would say the baby formula shortage has certainly caught our attention. Um, but most importantly, since we're going to be setting the clearing price, we're going to be exporting a massive amount of inflation. And so the riots that we saw in Peru, what we're seeing in Sri Lanka, like you mentioned, um, we suspect that that is just the opening salvo of a, of a series of rolling crises around the world. Turkey, for example, is most people aren't talking about it, but Turkey is undergoing substantial hyperinflation almost today. It's certainly inflation that is out of control. Um, and one of the things that we've preached um, and is that um, countries that are net energy importers are the ones that are going to suffer the most in a time of an energy shortage. And so the currencies of countries that are net energy importers like Japan and Korea and the EU are collapsing. And the currencies of the countries that are net primary energy exporters like uh, Russia or Norway um, are strengthening. The U.S. is kind of balanced. We produce about as much as we need. There's some imports and exports at the margin, but they kind of net out. And so the U.S. dollar um, you know, is sort of as a benchmark against those currencies doing just fine. Um, but if you look at Canada as an energy exporter, currency is strengthening. Australia as an energy exporter, currency is strengthening. Like we're, we're finding out the true essence of life uh, in a period of energy uh, abundance, then the value add economies do well and those currencies appreciate, but we're in the, we're in a deep energy crisis today. Do you think this energy crisis is going to wake people up? You think it's going to begin to have the silent majority stand up and say, all right, maybe this transition to unreliables and this unwillingness to drill for oil and gas isn't a wise decision. We, we should be drilling more and securing mm-hmm. our grid systems and our delivery systems and, and making sure we're more robust because there's this the whole climate hysteria uh, I don't know um, how you would describe it but I, I think people have been psyoped to believing this Malthusian view of the world that humans are bad energy is bad and as you described in the beginning energy is extremely important and uh, for some reason in the 21st century humanity having gotten this far has decided to make an energy regression and really invest in less reliable and most importantly, less energy dense sources like wind and solar in favor, excuse me, in disfavor of oil and gas and nuclear to that extent too. I know you wrote a piece on nuclear um, recently and that's another thing that really perplexes me in, in terms of energy policy is why has nuclear be, 
been so demonized when it is the most energy dense source uh, of fuel that we have on the planet. So you can't be a serious environmentalist um, and be anti-nuclear. And this is a, a point that we make stridently in many of our pieces, which um, we just, just any environmentalist that is opposed, anybody who claims to be an environmentalist and is opposed to nuclear power is de facto anti-human um, because you literally cannot generate sufficient primary energy to um, create enough life abundance um, and what will happen is the rich will get enough and the poor will die. And so um, it's not a serious policy. Um, so I would say that you know, from a climate perspective, um, we take it as an axiom that we would like to generate as much you know, human abundance, st standard of living inducing um, goodness um, divided by um, the minimum amount of CO2 emissions that we can make. And if you have that as your framework, as your prism, that both count, not just reducing emissions, but also increasing the standard of living as, of as many humans on the planet as we can in an equitable way, um, then you can't seriously be opposed to nuclear power. Um, and um, there's a place for renewables, um, there's a place for fossil fuels, and there's a huge place for nuclear. Um, you have to do it synchronized and intelligently. We've put out probably three separate pieces now detailing what we would do if we were in charge of the world. Um, and to the extent that people have read those and maybe we've changed a few minds, that's great. Um, but by and large, um, it is going to be unavoidable. We are not producing enough primary energy today to maintain the current global standard of living, let alone increase it and spread it more, more fairly. Um, and this, this um, income inequality, as it's called, is really energy inequality. And um, once you stir up the populace, it's not clear that you will get a better result. You're just going to get a different result. And so I would say that uh, we've let things go too far. And if you look at what's going on in the early stages of this, what we have called global famine, um, it's not clear that like a good outcome is on the other side. Anytime you enter into a singularity, it's impossible to know what's, what's going to happen on the other side of it. Um, we could see massive regime change. We could see, you know, um, significant wars. Um, it's just when you read history, in times of energy scarcity, wars happen. That's just the way it goes. Energy is life. And when you're faced between um, potential death and fighting for life, people choose to fight. And that's what's going on. You can't draw the direct line, but it, it, you know, correlation in this case is causation. Yeah. I mean, you can, I mean, it's pretty simple math. People get desperate. They get hungry. They're going to go seek food. And if somebody else has it and they don't, that's going to lead to direct physical conflict. And um, direct physical conflict is negative for the future production of food. And so you can end up in a pretty negative spiral, right? Um, disorder is spontaneous. It's one of the key elements of the Doomberg philosophy. And um, you know, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. <sighs> it's a pretty heavy situation. So other, uh, other than that, things are great. <laughs> 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 well, that's uh, so. That's one thing that frustrates me. I completely agree with the thesis that you've outlaid and that you've been re writing about for over a year now. And it seems very obvious to anybody who has any critical thinking skills and can read second, third order, project second, third, fourth order effects. And yet we have this political class globally that it seems like they're just handcuffing humanity where we're beholden to a bunch of 
incompetent bureaucrats who really don't understand the intricacies of the energy sector and why it's important. And they prefer to virtue signal for votes over actually get things done and make the world a better place. It, it, in the context of regime change, it, again, it should bring a lot of disorder. It's already bringing a lot of disorder. Do you think it leads to regime change in the sense that private industry just says, all right, we're not going to listen to you anymore. We're going to begin drilling. We're going to begin delivering this. And you, you have a collapse in confidence in the government and people just start getting shit done by themselves. That's what it seems like right now. People are just waiting on permission, permission, permission. And I think the point has gotten to such an extent where we cannot wait for that permission anymore. It is. Um, I would, I would, I wish I could say that I were more optimistic in that regard um, until the very top of our political leadership in the Western hemisphere gets serious. Um, we have a lot more pain to suffer is one of the themes of some of our tweets, for example. Um, you know, when you live in the cocktail party circuit, um, the hors d'oeuvres just show up. You know, the, the, the connection, the raw connection between, you know, life, death, and energy is foreign to you. It's so foreign to you that um, it's only natural that you assume that you, your platitudes matter. And they don't matter, actually. And then we've said this a fair number of times, which is, you know, in the battle between platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated. And um, there's literally no circumventing the fundamental laws of the universe, which are disorder is spontaneous. It takes energy to impose order on your local environment. Your standard of living is literally defined by how much order you get to impose on your local environment. To do that requires wasting heat, which means harvesting energy. And the integral of our ability to do that, divided by the number of people, um, defines the global sort of standard of living. And we've attacked supply, and we have uh, made bureaucratic red tape uh, a key hindrance. We have a whole army of litigators whose job it is to slow down such projects. Our geopolitical enemies have no such constraints, which is why we allowed ourselves to be in a situation where Putin would feel emboldened to roll into Ukraine because he had all of the energy cards in Europe. China has taken over the key ingredient supplies for the renewable um, supply chain and has leveraged access to cheap coal and slave labor to put Western, you know, similar Western corporations out of business. And we just allowed this to happen. Um, so we're led by unserious people. And unless and until we get serious politically quickly, um, we we're, we're much closer to Sri Lanka than people in the Western Hemisphere would 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 like to believe, and this is not just because we're doomed. Right now. No, I mean just today, this morning, had Janet Yellen come out and prove that she was completely disconnected from reality, saying that the average American household isn't feeling the pains of inflation yet, which is just. Yeah, it's just you know, it's, it reminds me of um, of Prince Charles <laughs> reading from a gold throne. A few weeks ago, I don't know if you saw that. I don't know. I missed uh, that one. You know, vowing to fight the uh, devil of inflation while sitting on a gold throne, quite literally. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Um, if you look up out of touch in the dictionary, <laughs> it, it's literally in full costume, sitting on a gold gold throne, Marty. Like you just. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, yeah. maybe this is where we can bring Bitcoin. That's why I like Bitcoin so much. Again, I've been in 
studying Bitcoin, enamored by it for nine years now, which is hard to believe, almost nine years. And uh, that's what drew me to it. It was, I, I was a child, I'm 30 years old. I was a child of the great financial crisis. In 2008, I was a senior in high school and really saw how messed up that whole collapse and then the bailouts were. And that I guess you could say that radicalized me to a certain extent. As I went into college, found Bitcoin in college. And to me, going back to like, all right, when are we just going to stop listening to these people? That's the future that Bitcoin presents to me. We can opt out of this madness and, and start coordinating with under a Bitcoin standard and not be beholden to the current predominant political apparatus, which really uses the money printer as the core of its power and its ability to lead us down these astray paths. So my, uh, you know, our relationship with Bitcoin is an interesting one. And uh, we, we have written some pieces that are perceived as skeptical. And let me lay out sort of our view, and then I'm happy to discuss it with you, which our view is money is literally at the heart of the power, as you alluded to, of these admittedly corrupt regimes. We live in corrupt societies. I mean, let's be very clear. Um, so in many ways, with the true Bitcoin maximalists, we have a lot of overlap in our agreement. Um, the crypto world is a different world, of course, than the sort of Bitcoin maxis, as we would call them. Um, we totally sympathize with the desire for a store of value that is outside of the reach of corrupt government power. Um, our belief is that people in this space um, underestimate the counterpunch that's coming from that corrupt economic power. And that unless and until you can um, transact in Bitcoin for the essentials you need to have a high standard of living, then Bitcoin, like gold, is not truly money. It is, um, it is a potential store of value. Um, so, for example, instead of Bitcoin, I personally hold a HODL, um, physical gold coins, um, anticipating that I am preserving the future purchasing power of, uh, for my children. Um, you know, an ounce of gold today is $1,800 and change, and what $1,800 buys you today will be what that gold coin could, could buy my children in 20 years. That's sort of how I look at it. Um, so I understand the store of value mindset. The the, the skeptical aspects of um, our writing in crypto is just the sheer volume of grift in the space and the shocking um, sort of willingness to circumvent U.S. law. Uh, we still are a country of laws. And um, and the radical underestimation of, of what's going to happen when the regulators get serious about it, because it is, as you have said, correctly, a direct assault on their power base, and we expect a counterpunch. That's sort of the main thesis of what we write about as it pertains to Bitcoin slash crypto. Yeah, the crypto space, like you mentioned, is filled with a bunch of grifters that are opportunistic parasites, I would argue, who are just trying to get a quick buck and play to uh, the novel nation state of this technology and there's these buzzwords and marketing to take money from other people on, on uh, the hype of potential technological innovation that they proclaim. Um, whereas Bitcoin, as you rightly pointed out, is more focused on the sound money store of value and via the Lightning Network and second layers working on making it a very viable 
medium of exchange allows you to transact in in Bitcoin seamlessly um, at, at low fee cost. And yeah, it is, as a Bitcoiner um, who many would describe as Bitcoin maxi, I don't like that term because it was coined by Vitalik Buterin um, to try to grift people to Ethereum saying that, that Bitcoin um, is slow, dumb and old in this boomer coin. But uh, it is frustrating being considered like having Bitcoin thrown into the whole crypto basket when if you really understand what Bitcoin is trying to accomplish as opposed to the the crypto universe, they're, they're very different things. Bitcoin is very focused and principled on actually bringing sound money and having a sufficiently distributed system so that it can survive that counterpunch you're describing that is coming. And Bitcoiners um, are expecting it as well. It's something we talk about on the show a lot. Like, what is the counterpunch? What's it going to look like? Um, when's it going to come? Is, is a very uh, re- reoccurring topic on this show, particularly. And so I'd be- can, I, can I ask you a question in this regard? Because it's something I actually um, would love to understand how you would sort of frame it. But um, there's the value of Bitcoin, and then there is the current price of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And we have argued that the grift is impacting the current price of Bitcoin. Um, do you see it that way? Like you can't separate what's going on with Heather and the current mark-to-market, you know, U.S. dollar, quote-unquote, price of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has swung wildly, as you know. I've been in, in and around the sector since you know long ago. And we wrote a piece where we described investments we made in the in the Bitcoin space back in 20, 2016. Um, but the current price of Bitcoin is undoubtedly tied to some aspects of the grift and the hype. And I wonder what, what is your reaction to that statement? Because we, I understand like when people, when people critique our work in our comments or on Twitter, um, they, they sort of, there's a sleight of hand. Uh, Bitcoin can't ever go away, which is different than the current quoted price of Bitcoin is in line with its value. What, what is your response to that? I mean, yeah, yeah. When it comes to, so are you alluding to like Tether driving the price of Bitcoin or something like that? Or, yeah, the Tether dominating the float and, uh, you know, various um, high profile bad actors might be, um, you know, running what we would call a, a fiat pilfering machine where they, you know, they swing the price of Bitcoin around and um, they induce people to use leverage and their fiat that they deposited to go buy their Bitcoin in the first place is pilfered from them because they're making leveraged trades and they just assume like, oh, I made a bad trade. That's why I lost my quote unquote money. I think there's a whole different, there's a community of true believers and then there's a community of speculators and then there's an overlay of grifters on top of that looking to take as much money from the speculators as possible. And that's the real weakness or the real threat of the ecosystem um, that is sometimes unacknowledged. And I was just curious. Yeah, no, I I don't think there's any doubt that there is some sort of price manipulation. I think that's driven just by the, the sheer size of the market right now. It's much easier to manipulate. And of course, you have these actors, these grifters, these people, these speculators looking to ARB, um, the, the relatively low liquidity uh, in the price movements that that can incite in Bitcoin. Um, big players coming in to sort of play that game. I don't think Tether is driving the price. I, I think Tether, historically, if you look at what happens, Bitcoin price goes up and then more Tether is printed because there's a demand for Bitcoin and people want to get in and trade it. And Tether, like it or not, I know you, you, there are laws in the US, but for the speculators who don't care about the laws, Tether allows them to get around that via their 
the gray area that they play in and the nature of that particular token. Uh, on this show, we've always told people don't mess with Tether. It's not worth it. The value is Bitcoin. Stay humble. Stack sats is something that we say week in and week out here. Um, and with that being said, like you can't stop people from using that stuff. It may affect uh, well, not even only Tether. There's many other ways to manipulate the price of Bitcoin. And yes, it's probably happening. But at the end of the day, like you said, that you mentioned like the value of Bitcoin, the network. I mean, what that value is driven by utility that is unique to Bitcoin in the sense that it, the network enables you to make transactions that are literally impossible via other, any other monetary network um, outside of the Bitcoin network. And um, yeah, so their cryptocurrencies are similar, but they're inherently centralized due to the nature of how they're launched and how they've been gamed since their launch. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I do think we're in a transitionary period. And again, going back to the fact that Bitcoin is still in its nation stage and there will be this fuckery um, with the price to some extent with whales coming in and trying to move into one direction or the other to, to scalp in arbitrage play. But over the long run, what really matters is the distribution of the network, the decentralization of the network. Uh, are people running nodes? How distributed is mining? Um, is it actually facilitating peer-to-peer -peer transactions? And um, that part of the Bitcoin network is only getting stronger by the day and so like the inherent utility is undeniable maybe that value isn't reflected in the price quite yet but when push comes to shove when you have this global energy crisis this global food crisis you have central banks seizing funds you have the canada freezing people's bank accounts uh, like people are naturally going to turn to bitcoin because it's going to be the only option for for a lot of people who are beholden to the whims of these central banks and, and politicians who don't want people to use their money in a certain way. And when that momentum builds and people are literally forced into Bitcoin because it allows them to make the transactions that the despots don't want, want them to make, you'll, you'll have a liquidity profile that makes it much harder to manipulate the price as some people may be doing it today. That's the way I view it at least. So I have a slightly nuanced view, which is you can't separate money from the surrounding legal framework that defines it as money. Mm -hmm. And we have we have tweeted uh, with some controversy that um, solution to U.S. dollar tyranny is not a different currency; it's a different government. Um, I guess you would say that um, if you can if you can establish yourself as the sort of in the, the network effect solution, then governments have to respond to Bitcoin as opposed to what we would say is, um, you know, it, this is all great, except if the government just decides to arrest anybody who owns Bitcoin, um, you're going to get arrested. Yeah, and that's, I mean, they could certainly try to make that move. But again, we live in the social media age. And uh, again, it's a, I think... We're hitting this very interesting inflection point. It's a bet I'm willing to take. I'm willing to get arrested for Bitcoin. I do believe uh, it is an imperative if we want to live in an abundant, peaceful future. And I'm willing to die on this hill. Maybe it sounds crazy, <laughs> yeah. but like again, you, you have this weird inflection point where we have the energy crisis, the food crisis. You have 
a dementia-riddled president here in the United States, and you're you're seeing a collapse in confidence in these institutions. And I believe we're reaching an I am Spartacus moment here in the West, where the the emperor wears no clothes, and when push comes to shove, people are hungry, they're unable to put gas in their cars, yeah. they're unable to go to work. Like the government up to this point has been a very scary. Uh, uh, opponent in this game, if you will, but I, I do think if people are hungry, they're unable to, to put gas in their cars, they're not able to work, and their money's not buying anything, then the collapse in confidence in the institutions that led to these problems is going to happen rather quickly, and the prospect of government shutting down what is essentially the greatest lifeboat we have out of this system is just going to be untenable. People will hit the streets. I, I don't wanted to get violent, but if they were to try to bring violence into the game, I think it would be met with violence at some point in the future because people are just going to be pushed too far to the edge. You know, I don't think there's much difference between your beliefs and my strong support of the Second Amendment and my willingness to own physical golf. <laughs> it's all just, hedge, it's all a hedge against edge cases, um, you know, and... Um, and it, I, I, like somebody's going to clip this and be like, Marty's inciting violence. Well, I don't want no, this no, at no, all. No, no. Like, no, I'm not saying you are yeah, either, but people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bitcoiners don't like saying like, hey, this is like the thing you don't say, but it's like, hey, we have to recognize the situation here. And I do say this because I think it's important to really highlight the potential down the road. Think about second, third order effects. Like, hey, if it goes here, it is going to get violent. It does not need to get violent. There are ways in which Bitcoin can actually help the US dollar. You, you want to talk about curbing social unrest so think, think about the potential of bitcoin continues to do what it has done historically in terms of compound annual growth rate imagine going to public pensions and beginning to restructuring them with bitcoin uh and the u.s government actually opening the door to say all right maybe we should fix these liability problems we have bitcoin as a tool to do that like it could actually you, know, you can make the argument it could prevent the likelihood of social unrest in the future and it's something that the government should actually really look into if it if it does really care about preventing this unrest that is inevitable if we keep going down this path it doesn't seem like they're too interested in preventing it if the evidence would seem they're interested in provoking it you know it's it's um mm -hmm. it's a pretty and again, what, what once you sort of get into that, <laughs> you know, event horizon singularity type outcomes, it's it's really impossible to, to predict what uh, what 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 the other side will look like. And each individual participant in the society um, has to figure out how best to hedge against those edge cases. So, so for me personally, for example, uh, in addition to physical gold, um, big and big believer in investing in our personal skills so that, you know, the present value of your future earnings is an inflation resistant asset. Um, I'm a firm believer in personal preparedness. Um, you know, I, I believe that um, prosperity starts at home and um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm all for increasing my personal working capital to hedge against such edge cases to the extent that I can. Um, and a firm believer in the Second Amendment, like there's no no country in the world could occupy the United States of America. I mean, it's just, I mean, forget about it. Um, it's not going to happen, right? And so, um, you know, you, you wrap it all together, you know, dwelling on the edge cases can lead you down some rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah. <I mean. laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm sort of a defensive pessimist. I like to think about those edge cases, um, develop a reasonable plan to hedge against them, and then, um, you know, 
go forward and lean into the current debates culturally and, and philosophically and politically, um, knowing that at least the foundation from which I'm leaning into those debates is sound. No, I completely agree. I mean, me personally, I'm, I'm from Philadelphia, from the Northeast, was living in New York before the pandemic. I moved my family down here to Texas, seeing the writing on the wall and trying to live physically in a, in a location that I think would be more stable uh, than, than other parts of the country. Uh, I think Texas, because of the love of the Second Amendment down here and the, um, the sort of self-sovereignty ethos that, that lives in Texans is, is something that I uh, really respect and, and want to live in an area where there's a lot of uh, like-minded people thinking this way. I've got freezers full of, of meat preparing yep. for the potential um, uh, food crisis. I've got my second child on the way in a week now. And so we've been oh, buying. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. We've been buying formula, preparing. <laughs> Good, that, good idea for yeah. that potential uh, shortage to compound and yeah and and again like going maybe I'm an idealist so like you're and I have the pessimist and the doomer mentality in me as well but I also uh, I don't know why but I also have this like idealist optimistic view too and it's part of the reason why I've started this media company to educate people about Bitcoin and these macro themes that are playing out is to uh, try to front run or not front run, but like to get this information to as many minds as possible. Cause I, I do believe that if you can change minds uh, and we can begin to fight back against this impending doom that is being brought onto us by, by these idiotic governments. And that's really the, the genesis uh, formation of Doomberg actually is to get into the, get into the arena of ideas to express and articulate our beliefs politely. Um, one of our philosophies is that uh, we will listen to any authentically held belief politely expressed. And I do think that one of the shames of, of social media, and I would say, to be totally fair, one of the challenges with the Bitcoin community is the vitriol with which um, people are attacked if they express a dissenting view of of the technology or the future potential or the price of Bitcoin. And um, we have experienced a lot of that. Um, most of the pieces we write about crypto in general and occasionally Bitcoin in particular are really edge cases that define sort of the interface between the US dollar system and Bitcoin and regulatory uh, matters and the way the world used to work. And um, for example, our pieces about Michael Saylor are actually not anti-Bitcoin. They are pointing out the fact that this man has created a potential uh, hum you know, cascading cell. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and at some, some point he's going to become systemic potentially, you know, to, to the Bitcoin, to the current price of Bitcoin, which as you say, you don't really care about, but many people who are drawn into this, um, do speculate with dollars. They, you know, they can't afford to lose. And, and so, um, I would say like the vitriol that we receive for some of our more critical pieces is, is off putting and does a detriment to the underlying philosophy that you, are expressing that I respect because it is authentically believed and politely expressed. Well, that's what I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've participated in the vitriol at some points in the past, more recently, more in recent years, just having had discussions like this with very smart individuals like yourself. We've had Ben Hunt on, we've had a lot of skeptics on, and I do think that, that vitriol, particularly on Twitter, and that's the other thing too, like Twitter isn't all of Bitcoin. There's so many quiet yeah 
Bitcoiners or people who just lurk on Twitter who are very much more uh, even keeled than than your average uh, tweeter online. And it's like, I, I do think there is some value in, so I guess the, what I would say is what you're witnessing on the vitriol from these individuals on Twitter, I think it's, um, it's driven by uh, the inter-Bitcoin versus crypto war. So like that for years, you've had this Bitcoiner, Bitcoin only versus like the, the crypto scam world. Yeah. And that's been like a very long fought and vitriolic uh, back and forth between those who are pushing the crypto scams and Bitcoiners who are like, no, you're confusing everybody and you're taking attention away from something that, that we should really be focusing on and is our only way out. And then that permeates uh, to the no-coiner world as well, where people are so battle fatigued that they just begin flat. This is the way I read it at least. Um, and I, I've tried to stop doing that. Um, or being out of the I will be a bit, uh, I will joke around with people and tease people, but I'm, I'm not going to yeah. say, um, I'm not going to say that you're a terrible person or anything like that. Well, it's bad for your adoption if, if um, only the early adopters are pure enough. You know, that it's, um, and I, I have, as we have gone through this journey, um, the, the, we had probably underestimated the, the war between the uh, Bitcoin. Puritans, I would say, in the altcoin world, um, and the layer of grift that is attached to the latter, um, and the, and so it, it's just fascinating to watch. I, I read um, Lynn Alden's most recent piece, um, sort of at post Luna UST collapse, um, which tried to differentiate between Bitcoin and everything else. And I would say that you know, in full transparency, I probably agreed with ninety percent of what she wrote on a few, you know. Uh, things that I would love to debate with her about, or at least inquire and have an intelligent discussion, which is sort of how discourse proceeds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have long told our friends, and and I said this in another podcast, like you can't let Twitter decide what you see. You ha- you can only operate on Twitter using lists. Yes, you have, you, you have to curate a proactively diverse list of different views, and only allow Twitter to put that in front of you. Because if you submit yourself to the algorithm, the algorithm is optimized for negativity and it will make you negative. And we've fallen victim to that. Um, we try really hard not to, like you say. Um, and um, it's hard not to sort of punch back when people totally mischaracterize what you said or try to denigrate the work of your life because Doomberg is the work of our life. And um, and we're very proud of this project. And it's, it's literally how we intend to feed our families. And so when people attack the franchise, it, it's very... The, the instinct is to punch back, and uh, we have fought that very, very hard. But I would say, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's just all part of the ongoing sort of um, way in which people interact. I was, most of my best friends I've never met; they're just icons on the internet and Slack rooms mm-hmm. or Twitter DM rooms that I've gotten to know and love. You know, and so it's very we're all on this journey, and and we end up in our own sort of social circles for a variety of reasons. And I would view the sort of true. Bitcoin maximalists, I know that's a phrase you don't like, but um, as being a, a, at its core, a social circle. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I completely agree. Tweet deck and list are the Twitter hack that everybody needs to incorporate into their 100%. lives. Tweet deck's the most underutilized resource on the planet right now. Well, I mean, Twitter's the worst run company in the world <laughs> right now, too. I mean, there never has so much value escaped shareholders, um, which is really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's arguably the the greatest communication tool 
that humans have ever come into contact with. And it's truly phenomenal. It is truly the global human town square. And, yeah. uh, and we have used it with great success for Doomberg. Like we have been very systematic about treating Twitter as the front end of, of our strategy and its work. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I consider Jack Dorsey a friend. I've, he's been on this podcast. I've talked to him outside of the show a bunch. And, and it is interesting speaking with him and, and hearing his original idea for Twitter as this communications protocol, which you can see he's trying to get back to that core idea with things like Blue Sky. Um, and I, I, I would just say, I don't think he's... Um, ecstatic with the end result of, of where Twitter is now. Um, and it's in quite the limbo as we're talking, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah I mean, that Project Veritas. Uh, <clears throat> well, but also just the whole um, Elon. Elon thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's um, amazing to watch. We'll see. Um, I have, I think that's a, a potentially very interesting development. Let's put it that way. Yeah, there's so much value in Twitter. Yeah, I I would not be sitting here right now speaking with you without Twitter. Twitter, um, this podcast would not exist without Twitter. The, the inception of this podcast was me DMing something, meeting with them in person, and them convincing me to do it. Um, it's and and my appearance on this podcast right now was from you DMing me <laughs> and saying, so, you know, I was like, sure, yeah, I'm happy to go on. By the way, like I think um, we have a philosophy, like as long as. We will go on, uh, you know, any podcast that is is willing to have us, mo unless there's some like, you know, obviously disqualifying like extremism on the podcast. Um, you know that, that you should be able to, you should be willing and able to sit down and defend your views anywhere, on any medium, um, with anybody who has authentically held beliefs politely expressed. So. Well, I'm happy that we're we're able to do this. I'm thoroughly enjoying the conversation. Yeah, same here. In your mind. What's what's it going to take for Bitcoin? To, what will happen within the Bitcoin world or externally that would convince you that, all right, this is something worth paying attention to? Or maybe it's already something worth paying attention to, but all right, this some signal here. Uh, I think we should dedicate more time to focusing on this and potentially adopting it. My biggest fear is that the early experiments in you know, decentralized ledgers and blockchain technology is going to facilitate the adoption of central bank digital currency. And um, we are in a very dangerous time uh, in humanity. Privacy, we, we, we have a piece in our head that we haven't begun to write or research yet, but you know, the, way our, the way we write our pieces is sort of this weird mix of just immersing ourselves in content and then developing a concept and then researching it. And then when the idea comes for a full piece, we put it out. Um, Central bank digital currency is the single greatest threat to human liberty that has ever existed. Mm -hmm. And um, I would love to, I would much rather live in a world where um, Bitcoin is the global currency <laughs> than live in a world where um, the current power structure has complete control over um, how much I'm allowed to spend and on what. We wrote a piece many, many months ago long before we sort of grew into something much bigger than we were back then called dystopia coin. Um, and this is probably the thing that scares us the most. Um, the central bank digital currencies are the ultimate enslavement of humanity. And that might sound alarmist, um, it's but not. it isn't, it's not, uh, people have no idea. Uh, so what happened in Canada, we wrote a piece about this dictator 
Justin Trudeau, because that's what he is, um, left to his own devices, um, he would be instituting much more. Um, you know, the only thing that stopped him from from his very dangerous path that he was on was, I believe, a bank run. Mm-hmm. Um, as as foreign investors pulled their money out of Canada, Canadian banks and the Canadian Senate intervened and said, Justin, uh, this is too far. Um, you know, these are very weird. Led- Some of the global leaders are very, very dangerous people. And Justin Trudeau is among the most dangerous. We, we wrote a piece called Just Watch Me, uh, which um, actually told the story of his father who had very similar tendencies. And um, his father F- called... Fidel? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, nice try. Uh, I'm not going on record with that one. His father, his father Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, um, invoked the uh, Wartime Act to bring troops into Quebec um, to put down a, um, a albeit controversial, um, you know, Quebec Liberation Front. I believe, I believe it was called. Um, anyway, um, you know the retroactive rewriting of the laws and the debanking of Canadian citizens for the mere act of expressing uh, a political viewpoint, however unpleasant the tactics they had used to express that viewpoint might be, um, was really shocking and eye-opening and scary. And imagine if, which is where Canada is trying to go, they had a central bank digital currency where the central government could decide what you're allowed to buy and whether you could access your money. Um, It's truly, truly dystopian. And um, we're much closer to that now, and I worry. Um, so, for example, I think some of the bad actors in the crypto community are just disinformation agents designed to create, um, you know, diversions, diversions, and uh, to to create a um, political cover for taking away people's freedoms. Um, anybody who is in the public square proclaiming the need and benefit for central bank digital currencies is somebody that you should not trust. No, I mean, what you have to do is look at China, look at their social credit system, look at what they've implemented like that. And that's the future we have. We get a Bitcoin future. We get that exported to the rest of the world. Well, you get, there's multiple ways to not have that. Um, Bitcoin could be one of those ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But what are the other ways in your opinion? I think political revolutions with seriousness. Um, so again, like I, we have said that you know the solution to using currency as a weapon against the people is not a new currency; it's a new political system, because the existing political system just won't tolerate it. So that's where I think we would probably diverge in our views of how the future might unfold. Um, absent a political change, the amount of Bitcoin you own is irrelevant. Uh, well, I would argue Bitcoin is a political change, right? And then, then, then I agree, like you could have a political transition that changes the architecture of the monetary system. But again, it's like a political system controlled by humans, yeah. which is inherently corruptible over the medium to long term. So you're just hitting the reset button and setting the stage for the inevitable oh, return to where we are now. Let me say it differently. The amount of Bitcoin you own if you're a citizen of Shanghai today, is irrelevant. That's true. You're stuck in your apartment. Your cats are starving. You can be whipped away um, on a false positive and shoved into a camp. You're running out of food. You're on the 10th floor of an apartment complex and all you hear at night are the screams of wild dogs and cats that people have let out out of fear of being taken away to a camp and that if their pets were stuck in the apartment, they would die. the amount of Bitcoin you own, if you live in Shanghai today, is irrelevant. You need a political solution 
to stop these tyrants. That's just my view. Um, I can see that. Yeah. And so um, now luckily that could never happen in the U.S. I don't Because of the guns. The second amendment. No, 100%. Like, I, good luck. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wish you luck. Um, the people that are welding apartments closed in Shanghai would not get that done in Texas. That's why I'm in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, nah. why, that's why I live in flyover country too. Um, like, good luck to you. I mean, um, so, you know, it is what it is. I understand the theoretical framework. Um, we've been fascinated by the government response, the interface between the corrupt powers that be. Again, if you read our pieces, like if you read this piece that we just put out, um, on Coinbase and, and Brian Armstrong. Like we begin that piece with a raw and outrageous example. MF Global, right? Total corruption. Like how can you steal 1.6 billion of customer mo money that is supposed to be held in escrow and nobody gets arrested? They became the governor of New Jersey. <laughs> oh yeah, it was after he was. Was it after? Okay. Well, worse than yeah, we didn't mention in the piece, you know, lots of stuff doesn't make it into the piece. Not only was he not arrested, he was allowed to start a new hedge fund a couple of years ago, and he is operating a new hedge fund with $400 million under management. Like, if you and I robbed a grocery store for $2,000, we'd be in jail for 20 years. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. We're talking so, about yeah. John Corzine, freaks. Um, yes, John Corzine, former U.S. Senator and Governor of New Jersey, who started MF Global, and the firm was trading their own proprietary book. And when they made really big bets that didn't work out, they dipped into customer funds to make up the shortfall. And that was the pretext story for a piece describing the risks of holding your Bitcoin and your cryptocurrencies uh, at Coinbase. Yes, which you should not do, freaks. Get your coins off of Coinbase. Uh, so let's jump into that. That that rewording of the Q10 or 10Q section of their filings is extremely alarming. If somebody is warning you that they are not bankrupt, you should take that as a hint that they may be close to bankruptcy. So the piece that we wrote um, has sort of two main themes. One theme is not your keys, not your coin. And this is literally the title of the piece and something that you and I, I think, would fully agree on. Um, and so if you are... Um, Housing your Bitcoin on an exchange and they control that wallet, that's not your Bitcoin. Um, you have claimed to it, but you're just another claimant if that exchange fails. And it's not like there isn't a history of exchanges in general and crypto exchanges in particular failing. Um, and so, but then the second part is just this outrageous Twitter thread that the CEO of a publicly <laughs> traded company put out where he says there is no risk of bankruptcy. Like, I have a risk of bankruptcy. You have a risk of bankruptcy. If you have fixed expenses of any kind, there's at least some risk that you can go bankrupt. But in this case in particular, as we detailed in the piece, Coinbase is struggling. Their revenues are collapsing. Their expenses are bloated. They have 3.3 or 3.5 billion in debt that they have to pay back. Um, they are growing headcount like crazy. They burned a billion dollars in the first quarter. Um, and they have a quarter trillion dollars of mark to market value of crypto assets in their in their custody. And if they file for bankruptcy, which we would be the first to say is unlikely, but it's not zero, um, you will end up being Mt. Goxed. Well, 
I don't know if you know the history of the lead up to the Mt. Gox insolvency, but there was a very famous YouTube video um, that Roger Ver made where it essentially looks like he had a gun to his head and was saying essentially what Brian Armstrong just said is that there's no risk of insolvency here at Mt. Gox. And that was uh, that was the theme last week was like, yeah, this Brian Armstrong thread is eerily similar to that, that Roger Ver video right before Mt. Gox went bust. And the hoopla that ensued after that thread last week, I can confirm, has led to a material amount of of Bitcoin leaving that exchange, uh, just from people, and, which could cause you know real issues down the road. And it's um, and we do know the Moncock story fairly well. We had a good friend um, who lost a fair amount of wealth in that collapse, and is still waiting for the ultimate resolution. You know, um, we we had a section of the of the piece that we ultimately cut out, um, didn't survive editing, but. Um, at least the victims of Mt. Gox have had seen the value of their claim appreciate substantially while they're waiting. And so while their hodling may have been forced, at least it is probably going to be accretive because Bitcoin was selling for a thousand back then and now it's selling for, you know, um, 30,000 and change and 28,991. Yeah. And, um, or yeah, in that range of 30. So, um, even though, let's say seven eighths of the Bitcoin has been lost. The multiple of the appreciation over that time period makes it accretive to get that money back. And it's not probably going to be the case if we see something as big and as structural as, as Coinbase failed. And again, I want to be very clear. We're not saying that Coinbase is insolvent or that it has a meaningful risk of bankruptcy, but no company with debt that is struggling to grow has no risk of bankruptcy. And for him to go on Twitter and say that was really the height of irresponsibility. Yes. I mean, and Coinbase is the archetype of the crypto scam in one large company. The, the fact no, it's, that it's funny you say that because we were, again, we're still learning about the sort of various tribes in this space. <laughs> and um, this is the first time that we've written about crypto somewhat skeptically, where we had no or almost no negative comments or feedback from the crypto world. And it kind of surprised us. And in fact, many people supported us for writing it because they tend to believe what we wrote, which is interesting, which goes to show you, you can find common ground with people despite different basis sets and different sets of beliefs. Yeah. Which is, what do you think about the intersection of Bitcoin and energy via proof of work mining as somebody who comes from an energy background? And so that's one thing that's made me more confident and given me more resolve in Bitcoin. I, I, uh, sit on the board of a Bitcoin mining company. I have my own Bitcoin mining operations that I personally own. And what is giving, again, I've gotten more resolve over the last four years, particularly because I've gotten closer into the mining industry and have observed the, the merging of the, the energy sector and the Bitcoin mining industry. I think they're actually going to be one and the same by the end of the decade. Um, it, so we, we have a probably slightly different view. Um, but so first of all, I'll take a step back. Um, if I'm given the choice between flaring natural gas or um, just emitting natural gas, which is sort of the worst thing that you could do. So on the sort of scale of what to do with excess natural gas at a shale oil field, for example, where you don't have the pipelines to move it, the worst thing you could do is to just release it into the air. You know, methane is an extraordinarily... Um, unwelcome, you know, greenhouse gas um, 
the, the next worst thing or the next, you know, the least worst, the less worst thing you could do is just burn it. It's better to burn it and to release CO2 into the atmosphere than to release methane directly. Um, and then to the right of that are a series of potential things you can do that are better than that. And I would argue that there's no doubt that because the world has decided Bitcoin has value, that burning natural gas to generate electricity to run a mining rig to create value for the mining company is better than just burning it and putting it into the atmosphere. What we would do in the ideal state, because energy is life, is we would create polysilicon from um, stranded natural gas, because at least with polysilicon, you get more energy down the road. Um, and so like, if you are thinking about your energy investment as an MPV calculation, you know, the long-term future energy flows are superior if you convert that otherwise stranded or useless energy source into something that creates and harnesses more energy down the road. But I do understand that um, if a project is economically unviable, absent a way to monetize the stranded energy, and if you can mine something that has a reasonable value that you can convert back into fiat, um, it may, might make sense for these companies to do that because it, if it pushes the development economics of a, of a, of a oil field from slightly break even or, or value destroying to value creating, then I can understand why people would do that. Is that nuanced enough? Like, does that make sense? Very nuanced, but I would argue like, why not both? Like, uh, like you could like what you, Bitcoin does it incentivizes or since you have that alternative accretive revenue stream, that can bolster profits and uh, decrease or increase certainty when it comes to drilling and exploring. Like uh, you could actually have the best of both worlds where you go and you drill more and you drill quicker and you use the associated gas up upstream to mine Bitcoin for a time while you wait for a natural gas pipeline to get built out to that well pad. And then when it is built out, miners just pop up, go somewhere else, and you send that natural gas to market to be made into polysilicon. So the, the, the sort of challenge that would have is they could mine any proof of work coin, right? And um, obviously Bitcoin is the most liquid and the, probably the most liable. And, um, but, you know, like it, it doesn't create future energy flows. Now, again, if it is a valuable bridge that enables a project to occur that you could eventually make. And, and that is certainly one advantage is the, mod, the modular nature of these mining rigs and their ability to quickly deploy them for sure is, is advantageous. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But, you know, you, you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of the good, but in a perfect world, um, we would be looking to harvest that energy for, um, for more life-giving future energy flows. Um, you know, the payback period on, on solar is five years, and so that means you're going to get basically free energy after the fifth year, assuming you could figure out a way to have it not destabilize the grid because it's intermittent, which is things we've written about. Um, but I, like I, I can, uh, unique, I said not unique, uh, different than most crypto skeptics, I can plausibly understand the bridging use case of monetizing otherwise stranded or wasted energy. Um, and if that monetization enables the production of more energy that wouldn't have otherwise been produced. And I'm all for it because energy is life. And the more energy we produce, the more life we can, we can share with the world. Another example for you, nuclear, small yeah. modular reactors. Uh, there's companies out there that want to bring small modular reactors to 
small communities or far out communities that are currently using diesel generation, they'd like to bring these reactors um, to these towns to help drive down their cost of electricity and give them a more reliable energy source. But the problem they have is they can build these reactors and they could potentially bring them to these towns, but then they have to wait 18 months for transmission lines to be built out to the, the local utilities to then begin to actually serve that electricity and that, uh, and that 18 months of no revenue just makes it makes it like unviable economically. And so you can similar to yeah, it's the a upstream. Bridging, yeah. Bridging, bridging T equals zero cash flow abatement. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 you would rather that the transmission lines be built out concurrently, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I could see that use case. Yeah. Bitcoin. I got to share the cathedral uh, annual shareholder letter with you. I'm not going to sure. pump my own bags here, but I think, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Um, not investment advice at all, but I think in that annual letter, the um, the vision of bringing about the abundant energy future that um, that you're describing, I think Bitcoin is a key mechanism to drive that, and that is why I'm so um, uh, adamant and focused on on Bitcoin specifically. So in your world, you would want to see all of the Ponzi grifters, the altcoins, the staking. Um, there's some aspects of DeFi that are very interesting, but it's just so polluted with grifters and venture capitalists looking to drop bags. On so you would want to see all that washed away, right? We would agree on that. Yeah, not only do I want to see it washed away, but I think just the economic reality of bringing a sound monetary good to the market just naturally does that because you have a store of value in which you can lower your time preference and save capital for the long run where that chase for yield is rendered unnecessary in a lot of extent. Like people can just save money and accumulate capital and... Well, the chase for yield is not about saving. It's about speculating, of course, as you know, it's greed and... Um... Yes, but it has also become a part of savings, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's been sold in that way um, mm -hmm. to un unsuspecting people who then get robbed. Um, yes. So, yeah, I think there's probably, you know, if we sat down over beers, there'd be a lot more that we agree on than we disagree on as, as evidenced by this conversation. So. I don't think we disagree on much. I mean, yeah, at all. It's I been great. It, it's okay to disagree too. That's yeah. another thing, like people talking about like civil, polite conversations. Um, like civil discourse needs to make a comeback as well. And Twitter is so disturbing. Yeah. That like, you know, I'm sure you probably get, catch some heat for having, having us on, you know, it's, um, I don't think so. I think you, I think, uh, I think you'd be surprised at how many people actually really respect the work you do and, and are okay that you're a bit skeptical towards Bitcoin. Um, I think <laughs> the overarching theme of what you guys are doing is extremely yeah. important. I think most yeah. Bitcoiners would recognize that. We're just a somebody who's possible to convert, and so you know we're, we're still in the. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Did you take the orange pill yet? No, but I think like if Bitcoin's going to succeed, the themes, particularly energy that you talk about, I mean, energy is below Bitcoin. You need that electricity to produce those hashes to sustain the ledger. And so, if we're talking about a path to success for Bitcoin, like you need to secure what is below the the technological aspect of it, which is energy. Oh, I I say like how many how many bitcoins you own in Shanghai is not relevant to you right now, you know. Um, and it might become relevant once they're sort of freed from the 
prison that they're put to. So put them in know, maybe maybe there's some stories in Shanghai where people are bribing officials with Bitcoin. Who knows? Could be, could be. Yeah, it's not. It's, you know, it's a really sad story up there for sure. So cool. That's terrible. Well, this has been fascinating. Yeah, happy to do it anytime, Marty. I was glad when you reached out, and um, you know, again, I, I'm happy to talk to anybody who has authentic views politely expressed, and then I think we both fall into that category. So it was great. It's incredible. What? Uh, let's tell people about the Substack a bit. You guys just, um, you've been writing for over a year now. More recently, you've, like you said, you're, you're making this your life's work. There, you're how you make um, your bread and butter, how you butter your bread. Um, I highly yeah. recommend if you're listening to this to subscribe. I subscribed for the paid subscription yesterday, and I, I, the value that you get for um, thirty bucks a month or uh, 300 bucks a year is, uh, is very high, very well worth it. In my opinion, we like to say 82 cents a day. Um, <laughs> no, look, it's truly a, a unbelievable. It's life changing that we were able to create this, this brand and to create this outlet for our creativity and our thinking and our writing and our editing and our Photoshopping and our humor and our pattern recognition skills. And it's truly the work of our lives. Um, we're a very, very small team, um, very tight team. We, we have an enormous privilege of waking up every day with a giant smile on our face because we know we get to go to our office and, and um, do what we love doing all day. And we've carved out a way to, to, to make more than enough money for our families to prosper. Um, and so it's an extraordinary privilege. We're extremely grateful to all subscribers. Thank you very much for subscribing. We, um, the, the launch of Duberg has been an incredible success. I mean, between us, we're the second um, number two on the paid finance Substack leaderboard in the world already after only 45 days of launch. Um, and it's, it's succeeded beyond our wildest. Imagine it could be more humbled um, by the outpouring of thousands of people subscribing. And um, we, we can be found at doomberg.substack.com. We are a fully paid um, Substack now, but we have 105 free articles that we wrote before we went behind the paywall if people want to sample our writings, um, they're all there. You can search them. We, we love every one of those pieces. Um, we're also on Twitter at Doomberg T, uh, as in teen. And, um, you know, it's really great. Um, great to be here. Really enjoy the conversation, Marty, and looking forward to doing it again. Well, I can't wait for that day either. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to get this information to more people's minds. I think it's imperative. And the optimist in me, does think it will have a difference and has the potential to prevent, um, to bring about less suffering than otherwise would happen if, if you weren't doing this. That's the hope. All right. Well, hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Can't wait to Will do it do. again. That's all we got today. Freaks, peace and love.